All right, everybody. So today we have Shannon Beer on the podcast. How are you doing, Shannon? I'm good. How are you? Good. So this is our first time really connecting. I had seen you more in the last few months, maybe even longer than that now, with Gabrielle Fondaro. Uh, she's probably been on the podcast like four or five times now. So she's, she's a regular here. Um, and I know that you guys have been doing some coaching stuff together, and I've, I've seen you pop up more and more. So before we delve into the topics, can you just tell people a little bit about your background here? Yeah, sure. So I am um, an MNU certified nutritionist. Um, I also hold an LLB from King's College, um, but I work now as an online coach. And I would say that my goal is to promote flourishing health which is something Gabrielle and I speak about a lot. It's just a broader conceptualization of health that considers more than just physical health um, in order to enhance our clients' overall well-being and just help them to become, I guess, like the best version of themselves. So we've been collaborating recently on a framework of coaching that we've termed comprehensive coaching. And it is a holistic, nutritionally agnostic and weight impartial approach to facilitating behavior change from the inside out. So we're meeting the client where they are at and coming up with a direction together. Um, And we host webinars and run the comprehensive coaching community group to help bring coaches and clients together. And we kind of, I guess, explore the intersections of health, wellness, fitness, food, and psychology. Um, They've also produced a five-part body image webinar series. I authored um, a book called Life After Dieting, and I mentor other coaches as well to help them broaden and develop their services. Um, I also host my own podcast. Um, I guess it's kind of more about a bit broader like science philosophy psychology and literature um just to explore some of those interests as well very cool very cool yeah i actually do know um some other coaches who have talked about getting involved with what you and gabrielle are doing and i've only heard positive things so it seems like a cool thing oh that's awesome so you know the theme of this kind of round table podcast here or i guess a variation of a round table is that you know i've mentioned i've started to train more women, I've had more women uh, clients. And I, for years now, even, you know, before I was training as many people, it does seem like eating disorders and body image issues and things like that are more prevalent in women. And certainly you see it in men too. Um, You know, that's one of the other things I've kind of learned as I've gotten more involved with training, just people in general, you do certainly see it in men, but I I would say it's more prevalent in women. Um, And it, it honestly almost seems like the majority of women in this space, at least. And now, of course, there's a huge selection bias there, but it almost seems like the majority have some disordered eating, some unhealthy relationship with food. Um, and so I kind of, you know, I wanted to talk with somebody like you with your experience about one, where does that kind of stem from? Um, and two, what you have found to implement, you know, in your, in your time coaching that has helped that. Yeah, I would say the same thing in that I have noticed a lot of disordered eating type behaviors in my clients, um, whether that's restricting certain foods, restricting amounts of foods, um, or just food preoccupation. So thinking about what someone's going to eat all of the time, or being very inflexible with their food intake, for example, having a fear of moving away from tracking macros, you know, what do I do? Like feeling some kind of 
compulsion to constantly track. Um, so those are like some of the types of behaviors and cognitions that I've noticed. And I think one of the crucial things here is that disordered eating behaviors are more prevalent than eating disorders. And as you mentioned with the selection bias, it's pretty likely that a fair few of our clients may be displaying those behaviors because it's closely related to dieting. And I don't know about you, but a lot of my clients come to me wanting to change their body composition. So we're kind of working with a risky population. And the important thing is that when someone has disordered eating behaviors, it's very difficult to spot that in yourself, which I think puts the impetus on us as coaches to be able to recognize those thoughts, those behaviors, um, and to raise our concerns or to help a client address them if they if they wish to. So some of the things that I think have been helpful for me is firstly understanding like the nature of the, the eating concerns. So I've worked with people who really struggle to allow themselves to eat certain foods, you know, just cutting out foods, um, like specific foods, I guess, viewing certain foods as good or bad can be quite common. And then also evaluating themselves, uh, you know, depending on whether they've eaten a bad food or now I am a bad person for eating a bad food, right? Um, Also people who, it's quite common that I found restrict a lot during the day and then struggle with overeating at night because they're pretty hungry, you know, and thinking that that's the, the, the extent that they need to go to in order to lose some, some weight. Um, I've also worked with people who, again, have just really struggled with thinking about food all the time and holding themselves back from certain aspects of their life because of their, concerns around what food will be available um, or not feeling confident in themselves to to go away for a weekend for example and not knowing how to eat on the fly because they're so used to having a plan in place and meal prepping and tracking everything so depending on the the type of um, eating behavior I think there'd be different ways to address that for example with the um a a client who is struggling with restriction during the day and overeating at night one of the the biggest things to do is to help them to be able to eat regular meals throughout the day so at least they're not physiologically you know starving and primed to overeat in the evening and there's also a lot of i guess addressing thoughts that goes on as well because oftentimes the problem isn't with the food itself it's more so what the the food represents or the motivations and intentions behind dieting and restriction in the first place. Um, And that's kind of where I started to look into the body image work because a lot of the time someone's relationship with food will reflect the relationship that they have with themselves. And not always, but sometimes the reason that someone um, restricts and feels such a uh, I guess urgent impulse to restrict is because they really want to change how they look they're really dissatisfied with their appearance and it's very important to them to look a certain way so a lot of the um, body image work comes in alongside addressing some of those behaviors and cognitions yeah yeah I think you know you mentioned how a lot of people most of your clients come to you want to improve their body composition 
And I think that furthers the selection bias towards, you know, seeing it with women, because I think women in general tend to have some more of these issues. But then on top of that, it's much more rare for a woman to say, hey, I want to bulk up, right? I, I mean, that exists for sure. And certainly, I think when you see women who have been in the space for a while, and they realize the benefits of maybe having higher body fats at times and gaining muscle, you do see that. Um, but in general, the vast majority, especially in gen pop, the vast majority of women's goals are to lose weight, be skinnier, things like that. Whereas certainly a lot of men want to lose fat too. Um, but a lot of men want to bulk up. And so if anything, to be able to tell them, Hey, you get to eat more, like this is a good thing. That's a, a huge aspect of it. And then two, you know, if you get into like a societal view of it, I mean, personally, I've made many comments on my YouTube channel about how when I bulk up and I gain body fat, I actually tend to get more compliments because, you know, 99% of the time I have my clothes on. And so that's how people see me. And so it's like, oh, wow, man, you're like, you're looking big versus for a woman, you know, generally speaking, that's not what they want. That's not how they want to be perceived. So it furthers that selection bias um, and, and that predisposition towards women dealing with these issues. So, I mean, that's just kind of like a general comment on it, but then also, as you mentioned, like once you start to train more and more people, you start to realize like there's such a variation in terms of what works for a certain person. Like if for me, it, it was almost something I had to deal with. Like if I wanted to effectively coach people, I had to step back and kind of be like, okay, just because, you know, when I, and you know, you don't know this, but when I started this, I was like 12 years old and there was always just no lack of willpower for me. I mean, it was always there. I would just do it. And so when I would just hear people say, oh, well, like, I just, I don't know what to do. I just keep cheating on my diet. I was like, what do you mean? Like, it, it was like, it was frustrating. I was like, well, just don't do it. But obviously saying that is not really, I mean, there's times where you have to be kind of more stern with somebody, but for the most part, like that's not an effective coaching principle to just say, well, just do it. So uh, how have you found for those who come to you and just say, you know, I've repeated this problem, whether it's a binge at night or you know, you know, whatever it is, I, I just want to get skinnier and skinnier. How have you found as effective to address that issue without maybe putting a lot of blame on them or making them feel even worse? Like you said, maybe that they're a bad person for doing it or anything like that. Yeah, I think it's really important to realize that um, willpower has very little to do with eating behaviors. And the reason that someone may struggle to quote unquote stick to a diet um, there, there's a number of reasons why that may be the case and it's not for a want of trying or a lack of trying um so i think the important thing is there to really think about the relationship that you have with your client and um knowing that sometimes a lot of these eating related behaviors are very personal um and there's a lot of i guess stigma around disordered eating and also weight as well and I think it can be very difficult for someone to open up about those issues. So we as coaches need to be able to provide a safe space for clients to feel like they can talk to us and that they won't be judged. Because if we are judgmental towards our clients, that has the potential to induce shame, which is an emotion that facilitates self-concealment. So someone who experiences shame is likely to be fearful of being judged and therefore they're not going to tell 
any you know anyone what's really going on because nobody wants to be judged by someone else um and this is like a, a problem that can get in the way of our intervention and our work together because we need to understand what's going on in order to make any changes so um if a client has opened up about struggling to make a change i think one of the most important aspects is to develop awareness and insight of what's going on. So if someone does regularly overeat, are they able to spot patterns, you know, between these overeating episodes? Are they able to identify how they felt in the moment? Is there a trigger? And what did they do in response to that? You know, what thoughts and emotions were arising? And then we can talk about those things, you know, just eliciting that awareness I think can help someone to understand themselves because oftentimes again clients are likely to blame themselves anyway you know putting it down to a lack of willpower thinking that their struggle to um, get a grip on their eating behaviors is reflective of their um, their self you know some kind of personal failing when really that's rarely ever the case there's a lot of external factors and internal factors at play as well so yeah I think the most important thing there is developing that sort of relationship you know having acceptance um, unconditional positive regards compassion empathy for the person that you're working with so that they feel able to discuss these things and helping them to look at their own behaviors from a non-judgmental stance because again if there's a lot of judgment going on that's going to create a barrier to um, change so I'd say that's probably the most important thing. Yeah, you, you made a good comment that, you know, it has very little to do with willpower. And I, I find that um, bodybuilders in general, but a lot of people, they love to give themselves undue credit. And that's not to say that, like, they don't work very hard. Um, but it, it's very common to be like, you know, I just because I even said it, right? Like, I have, like, so much willpower. But it was funny, when I was in college, I had a friend who somebody had said, oh, you have so much willpower. And then my friend said, well, I don't really know if it's willpower. I think he's just got the habit at this point. And that, that really is true. You know, at one point, like I did have to have like the initial willpower to make the change. And obviously sometimes you do have to use willpower when a certain temptation comes up. But for the most part, you, you've made a decision, you implement the patterns and over time it just becomes the norm. And at this point it would be weird for me not to go to the gym. Like I would actually feel more uncomfortable just saying like, well, I'm just going to stop going to the gym than the opposite. Right. And so I think that that's a really good point because, um, if you rely on willpower, it, it's, I don't know anybody who's been doing this for 10 plus years who has made it like a lifestyle who's still like, do I want to get up in the morning to work out or not? And they have to make that decision every time it just becomes part of it. Right. Just like, you know, brushing your teeth or, or whatever else you do. Um, so I just thought that that was a really good point. Um, and secondly, you mentioned, you know, the kind of like unconditional empathy and, and things like that. And I think for, the empathy is really important. I'm wondering, do you ever have a point where I don't want to say that you don't coddle them, but more like that you feel like you need to be more stern with them that, you know, if, if you were to constant, and I don't know if there is a, a female versus male difference here in terms of the client, but that maybe a harsher tone at times could help them if it's somebody who you just keep seeing fall into the same negative pattern over and over? Um, no, pretty much no. Um, for the people that I work with, I think that, I think tough love is kind of 
glorified in the industry right no days off grind 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 hustle mentality all that kind of stuff we we see that a lot um but there's very i i don't see any scientific evidence that shows that that's actually helpful and there's a lot of evidence behind um the idea of compassion towards ourselves and and others for facilitating behavior change is actually associated with increased motivation to change and also um, I guess being able to take a more realistic perspective on your own personal failings and being able to um, not yeah like take responsibility for that because there's not a fear of judgment you're not trying to conceal anything so I don't I, I would imagine that there are people out there who, who like the tough love approach, right? There's probably people who feel like um, when like the whip has been cracked, they really enjoy that. For example, at the moment, I'm taking private BJJ lessons. I want my coach to tell me what I'm crap at so that I don't get submitted when I'm rolling with people. I don't mind that. Like for me, I, I'm not bothered. I don't take it as a like global assessment of my self-worth but when it comes to coaching others particularly with nutrition and and weight um that are like sensitive topics that come with risks i don't think it's worth risking a tough love approach unless you have a really good relationship with your client like as in you know that client you've been working with them for a long time I work with a range of people some people don't like the idea of kindness and they're probably the people that maybe need it the most um so I don't necessarily use the words compassion but I may say hey let's take a, a more rational um look at things here which usually involves a kind of voice you know when we're addressing like critical talk or whatever um because again the reason that someone's struggling to change usually isn't a a lack of motivation so i don't really see the utility of cracking the whip because that wasn't why they struggled in the first place instead we need to understand the the root of the problem which again requires being able to look at behaviors that may um be quite difficult and and thoughts as well that may be quite difficult to address and I don't think that berating someone um, is ever going to help them do that so yeah if if I was to see I guess evidence of tough love and and when it's appropriate then that would be awesome because it's certainly easier to do you know and everyone is cracking the whip but um yeah at this stage I don't really see much applicability for that, especially, as I say, when there there are risks involved anyway. I would rather take an approach that um, appears to be more beneficial and is lower in risk. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really asked that question, like, genuinely in the sense that, like, I really don't know the answer when it comes to that. I, I've had times where I had to, I don't know, I wouldn't even call it be stern. I've had to you know, set time aside to talk to the client about having realistic goals, because they were constantly disappointed about not being further along. And so I just had to have a very real talk with them that like, look, like, this is where you're at. This is what is achievable. This would be really great progress. Um, But again, I wasn't, you know, berating them. Certainly, I I can't imagine ever berating (laughs) a client. Um, But I, I, I don't know, maybe there's different tones and you know, how it comes across. Uh, and, And again, context is hugely important there as well. So um, I guess just kind of as like a final piece here, I know that a lot of the people I've talked to, it's that, you know, like we talked about, maybe the willpower is necessary for that initial step. And once you get into the habit, I think for a lot of people maybe listening, they are still in that initial phase where it's like, okay, maybe like, I hate the way I look every time I look in the mirror or 
you know, I, I really want to go downstairs and make that whole batch of brownies, whatever, but they haven't reached out to anybody to help. Maybe they have, or have not seen a therapist, which, you know, could be helpful as well. Um, how do you find that most people end up coming to you? Is it people that have never had any type of coaching with that before? Um, for those people who really need that initial push, any suggestions if they're listening to this, maybe this is a little more comfortable for them than reaching out directly, you know, since it's anonymous, they're not really, you know, putting their profile or anything out there at this point. Yeah, I have had, um, again, I work with a range of people. So a lot of them have had coaches before, but also a lot of them haven't. Um, and they don't really know what coaching involves. And I think most people reach out to me after having gone through my content, say on Instagram or read some of the articles that I've written or have listened to me on podcasts. So at that stage, they're fairly familiar with some of my ideas or just my philosophy towards coaching. And um, I also have people just reach out and ask questions, you know, and I'm happy to respond to that to just give, I guess, initial guidance to help someone um, because I, I do think that sometimes the idea of change can be quite overwhelming and I guess quite scary you know not knowing where to start and also being fearful of what the process may involve so I think I think really understanding your motivations to to want to make a change and the impact like considering the impact that it may have on your life I think can be a big step there to maybe give someone the, the push to reach out, you know, what would happen if I continued on the way that I have been, you know, where would my life be headed and what could the alternative be? You know, what would happen if I did get help with these issues? Um, I think that can be something worth considering if someone is yeah, struggling with the idea of reaching out to someone. Awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you very much for taking the time for the segment. And I know you mentioned that you do, help a lot of people here so where can people reach out to you i think the best place to find me would be on instagram um so that's just shannon beer underscore or you can also check out my website which is shannonlbeer.com as i mentioned i do have um, a bunch of articles the podcast that i've been featured on my podcast as well so i'm sure there'll be something there and yeah any of those places would be a good place to contact me awesome thank you so much Thank you. All right, everybody. So we have back on the podcast, Dr. Gabrielle Fandaro. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm enjoying the Arizona winter. It's like, or spring, I guess. It's like 90 degrees already. Yeah, it is uh, like 65 here, which is actually really nice relative to what we've been dealing with. We have like five snow days this summer or this uh, winter. It's been, it's been a rough winter. I'm missing South Carolina for sure. Oh, yeah. 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 That's pretty intense there. Yeah. So uh, this is now, I think we have going to have four or five total, but for this one, I think you're the third one I've talked to so far. And basically the mm -hmm. idea behind this, it's almost like uh, a round table, but everybody individually, because there's no way I was going to coordinate five different people's, like you're all over the world, basically. So there's no <laughs> way we we're going to coordinate it. Um, but I talked to Shannon, I talked to a couple other people. And so um, basically the idea here is as I've gotten more female clients, you know, there are patterns I see and you see it in male clients as well but you definitely see it more at least I've noticed it more in female clients and I think the literature supports that it's more prevalent in women that you know the general topic of eating disorders and body dysmorphia and things like that um, but I think with you since like, you have such a strong nutritional background and obviously you you have the coaching background of course as well 
um, maybe we can get a little bit of a different take on it. But just the idea of like, why is it more prevalent in women? Um, is that more of like a social thing? Is it just something inherent to women there? Um, and, and two, as far as actions to take to correct it, when you look at how a lot of, if we were just talking about off air, a lot of the motivation that I see in women comes almost from like a, I don't want to call it self-hate, but it, like you said, like they're almost, some of them are like disgusted with how they look. And it's almost like, I want to do this so that I can accept myself. Whereas, and again, just as a general trend, a lot of guys are more like, you know, this body is awesome. I want to get to that, but I don't see that um, again, that kind of like self-hate so much. So I don't, that's a very uh, broad category. I don't know if you want to take anything from there. Yeah. Well, I think when we take a look back um, throughout history and the way that a woman's appearance has been tied to her value and her character, uh, we can maybe borrow a quote from the early 1900s. I want to say it was in a newspaper. Um, uh, a woman's, uh, it was something like a woman's value fades out as her double chin fades in. So, so, um, now it's maybe not quite as overt, but there are still different, um, standards of beauty and aesthetic for men and women. I think there's a, a, a greater amount of flexibility for men, not to say that they aren't held to a standard at all. Um, but there are sort of like niche um, <laughs> uh, appearance standards like dad bod yep. that, um, you know, acknowledge that there's a, a specific appearance that is not one that's um, super sculpted, but it's sort of met in like a cheeky way. You mm -hmm. know, it's kind of fun, like, oh, dad bod, you yeah. know, and you can get like a fanny pack that looks like you have you know, a, a, a little stomach pooch and things like that. And so people are lighthearted about it. And, and it, it doesn't um, tie in as much to the man's value and, and worth as a human being, because he is the, you know, if he's providing for his family, then he, he has value, then he has worth. Not to say that that's fair mm. either, but it's not something that is so... Um, intrinsically uh, attached to his appearance. Sure. Whereas with a woman um, who a uh, hundred years ago was sort of a, a commodity, you know, marriages were um, a business arrangement. A woman was a homemaker. She had to be fertile. She had to produce children and um, she had to be easy on the eyes. And so as um, beauty standards and ideals kind of shifted in the early 1900s, uh, there was a movement away from the sort of like plump and Rubenesque um, ideal female figure associated with uh, abundance and food security to a thin ideal. And thinness became synonymous with a high level of self-control, um, uh, you know, good moral character, um, uh, rationality, science, modernism. And so if a woman was in a large body, she was seen as less valuable, less worthwhile than a woman in a thin body. And the reason that women um, might experience what kind of what you talked about as, as self-hatred, I think about that more as shame. Um, so there's a lot of shame tied to the way our bodies look, because uh, 
our bodies are a way for us to establish safety and security. If we are uh, deemed desirable by um, a man in our society, that means that we're safe because we've been, uh, because we're desirable and because we're acceptable, that there's no fear, there's, there's no fear of rejection. And shame is really the fear of rejection due to some level of inadequacy that we will be deemed unfit for this society and will be cast out. And when we take an evolutionary perspective, that can be really scary because we can't, as humans, really um, thrive in isolation. You know, take one person and remove them from their social circle and and they're going to face real challenges, um, you know, if they're out in the wilderness. And we still have that same sort of fear response to the idea of rejection. And so when a woman uh, looks at her body as her ticket to acceptance and desirability and love and value and worthiness, then of course, if she feels that she's not fitting the specific ideal, there's a sense of fear and urgency there to hurry up and fit that ideal or else who knows what's going to happen. Am I going to end up alone? Whereas a man might feel that way if he um, doesn't feel that he can provide for a family. Right, right. So, and I'm glad you kind of touched on like the reason behind it, because we see these things and they can say, well, it's not fair. But as you explained, I mean, historically, there's reasons behind this. And to some degree, I mean, I think it's always great to, you know, just because they might not seem realistic now doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for it. I would wonder, and, and want your opinion on it, do you think that's something that's ever going to be completely even between men and women? Because when you look at it, I mean, just generally, we know that like, on average, right, men are seen as more attractive based on status and wealth and ability to provide. And certainly, I, I think most people would say, well, if their male partner is also good looking, that's great. But it's it's certainly not like the highest priority. Whereas socioeconomic status is not irrelevant when a man is looking at a, a female partner, but it's much less relevant, right? And, and their appearance is much more relevant. I'm just wondering, do you, do you see that as something that's changeable? Or do you think it's more like, okay, let's just recognize it and then try to adapt? Hmm. I have hope that at some point we might, um, as humans, be able to arrive at a place because we've acknowledged it, where we're practicing more, um, I want to say, acceptance. Uh, and uh, inclusivity and maybe awareness. I don't know that we could ever create something that's completely equal and the same. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people who identify as men and people who identify as women, you know, there's like no difference between them at all. And we have, you know, reached some like Zen level of, uh, you know, our physical bodies are just uh, right, vessels. Right, yeah. uh, you know, that's <laughs> going to happen. But I do think that there is potential and capacity for us to, um, you know, even from a very practical standpoint, like educate about the origins of beauty ideals and standards and how they might change, you know, how they differ culturally. And from there, with that awareness, be able to, um, acknowledge and maybe diffuse from some of the like societal beliefs so that we don't 
um, end up attaching so much of our worth and value to what others might think. So those standards can still exist, but maybe if we have enough education and mental health support, we can get to a place where we say, I might look different from this standard, but that doesn't mean that I'm less than, or that I have, um, you know, or that I, I will be rejected or that I will never find a partner. Um, but I think that that is, I don't know, like maybe decades down the road. I mean, beauty sure. standards have changed. Obviously women have far more rights now. Um, but I think the other thing is that we, we don't maybe realize in terms of like all of like modern human humanity, how recent it is that women have had the right to vote and have been able to work uh, full time and to support themselves and not have to be married, you know? So like, we are really like, we're, we're like, wow, let's look at for like, how is this possible? And it's like, we literally like just took the training wheels off on equal rights. And so yeah. we'll probably take a long time before we get there. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and just as an analogy, cause I, I don't want to make this at all like a race thing, but just as to make a further analogy, it's one of those things where some people say, oh, I don't understand how people could think this way. And it's like, well, like there's actually a natural in-group bias, right? When you look at like a kind of like us versus they kind of a thing. And it's it's not, I mean, this isn't just for races. This is like when uh, team sports of different countries and things like that. It is a natural reaction, even on an unconscious level to have an in-group bias. But it's important that, okay, well, we're not animals, right? Or, we're, you know, we are <laughs> more evolved and we can say, hey, we recognize this. Now let's take the conscious steps to actually do something about it. And like you, I can't imagine, you know, we're ever going to get to a point where, hey, your physical attractiveness doesn't matter at all to me. And, you know, I mean, that's very unlikely, but we can stop and say, hey, I'm not going to necessarily put like your self-worth based on that, you know, um, it's, and I don't think it's ever going to be perfect, but it, you're right. I mean, if you look at just 20 years ago, 50 years ago, huge strides have already been made. So I, I think the progress is there. Yeah, exactly. And now that people are speaking about it more openly, um, I think those are, it's going to be sort of like maybe a grassroots type of effort, you know, where we have these types of conversations. Um, but also acknowledging that, you know, we can't make people change. We can't make people change their minds. And so even though I understand like the intentions of people that um, are maybe like very um, intense about like sharing their opinions about these things uh, in order to affect change, that quite often, um, you know, and I've heard this, I actually, I think um, it was on a Sigma Nutrition podcast, Alan Flanagan was talking about sort of like social justice movements, and how quite often you'll hear, you know, these opposing viewpoints, like the, the anti-diet side versus the people who are like very vehemently, you know, like uh, people with obesity can never be healthy, um, that they're really kind of often, you know, using kind of the same like logical fallacy, yeah. Logical fallacies and um, you know, uh, like appeals to authority or um, you know, arguments that that lack so much context and nuance that they're kind of um, just inaccurate. Yeah. So uh, if we are going about it in that way, we probably won't make as much progress as if we kind of try to create or or establish like some shared meaning. Like, what are some things that we do have? in common, you know, like, 
is it is it really wrong to care about our appearance at all? Probably not. I mean, we can care about how we can care about our physical body. We can care for it. Um, but that looks very different from striving to meet some external expectations, um, you know, that might actually put our health at risk because we think like, I have to look this certain way or I'll be judged by people. So it doesn't have to be this sort of like all or nothing approach of like, I don't, you know, I'm going to like buck the system and like never exercise because I don't want people to tell me what to do. You can do those things for a different reason. Yeah. So when you have, again, I'm sure you have some process of, you know, when you initially take on a client, right, you, you can kind of see the patterns of how they're talking about themselves and, you know, what they see. If you get the sense, I mean, obviously, some people are just going to explicitly tell you, hey, I have a history of eating disorder or stuff like that. But um, in those situations and the ones where you can kind of tell somebody has some body dysmorphia or eating disorder issues, do you approach it differently? Obviously, from a coaching standpoint, you probably do, right? And how you maybe talk to them and support that you give them from a actual like nutritional approach. Are there different approaches that you might apply so that they maybe don't spiral into a a worse pattern? And I really don't know. I mean, if there's something that you do in that case. I would say actually my approach to everyone is my, my approach in terms of my, the, the spirit and the attitude that I embody is the same with everyone. Um, And so whether I have the sense that a person might be struggling with their relationship with food, or they feel very comfortable with their relationship with food and body, uh, I always strive to be a, an, a person providing them, you know, with empathy, compassion. Um, it's collaborative. There's uh, a bi-directional exchange of information and expertise. Um, so I'm never just telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they want information, then absolutely I provide it to them and I guide them. And my expertise, um, you know, helps the the journey along, helps things, you know, uh, helps to keep the journey a little less bumpy. Um, but if I'm working with a person that seems to have some red flags in terms of eating pathology, um, it really depends on the the reason that that person has signed up with me and the rapport that we've established, those two will influence the way that I might approach that conversation. Certainly if I uh, observe some serious red flags that look like they need to be referred out, then I'll let that person know, um, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I want to make sure that I give you the, the best support possible. And I think in this case, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. And so I would suggest checking out, you know, the, the NIDA website. So the National Eating Disorders Association mm-hmm. website and, and refer them out that way. Um, if it's a person who has come to me because they've identified that they're in a cycle that is um, harmful to them or problematic or invasive in some way, uh, the door is really open already to have that discussion. And, and it really just starts with, you know, um, what's been going on and how is it affecting you? Um, where do you want to be and how are we going to help you get there? What's the next thing that you feel comfortable doing? If a person has come to me, and this is less often the case now um, because my coaching has changed, but if a person comes to me um, for intentional weight loss, uh, for the purpose of liking themselves more, um, kind of to, to pare it down, that... Um, can potentially be a a slippery slope because when our motivations for change are to um, avoid shame or, uh, or avoid 
the body that we don't like or um, achieve some reward of like, you know, a a weight loss challenge or um, I'll be liked or I'll have happiness after this. Uh, That type of external motivation is um, powerful for initial change, but it's quite fleeting. And so those folks will often experience difficulties with adherence, which is totally normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, um, those are some of the risk factors for um, experiencing some form of eating pathology. So if a person is losing entirely for aesthetic purposes, with no um, consideration of health, then, um, or if they have a lot of perfectionism, if they have some body image disturbance, then it's more likely that they might already have some form of eating pathology. Right. And in that case, it might be, and it's quite often is just a subclinical, um, you know, collection of, of like experiencing guilt around eating or, 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 you know, feeling they can't have certain foods around the house. And it's difficult in that situation because the person has come to me for intentional weight loss. They have not come to me to work on their relationship with food. Right. And to bring that up um, is quite often going to be an unsolicited piece of advice. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be met understandably with resistance. So in those cases, um, far from you know telling people what to do, I will do my best to um, always be encouraging and supportive of what are you know, normal eating behaviors. Like if you go out with your friends and you eat a hamburger that person might might um, express that they have guilt about it. Mm-hmm. And so we need to, of course, validate that their experience is real, like not, oh, you shouldn't feel guilty about that um, because we're just telling them like what they shouldn't do and that's not super helpful. Um, but also to encourage some thought about like why they might feel guilty about that and to really be supportive about the other aspects of that experience that were really positive for them. Like, oh, that's yeah. great. You went out with your friends. You were able to have fun. So awesome that you, you know, are practicing flexibility. Um, you know, it's normal to eat a hamburger from time to time. Um, uh, would you like to talk to me about, you know, how you felt about it? And if they don't want to, that's totally fine. So we invite that discussion, but we don't push it. But over time, as you start to establish a solid relationship with that person, sometimes the door opens to have that conversation. And the person might then realize that they don't have a really satisfying relationship with food, but they're feeling stuck. And then that's when you start to pick up on on their discussion about wanting to change. But that has to happen first before we can just say, hey, you know, this seems like it's a problem. Like, you probably shouldn't feel that way. Let me fix you. I'm not there to fix you. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And even like what you mentioned about knowing like, hey, this might be something to refer out, like even with your pretty vast experience there, you know, to know, I mean, there's also so much you can do, you know, through consults and things like that. Um, But, you know, I I see all the time and, you know, obviously coaching is not really regulated online at all. Um, And there's some, I mean, obviously won't say who, but it was like, it was like, I do. And it was like, this, this is like everything, you know, it's like, you want to like run faster, build muscle, do this, eating disorders, everything, just contact me for coaching. And I was like, and I know this person's like not super experienced. And I'm just like, how, like, that's really irresponsible. And like, even myself who, you know, I've certainly read a lot about disordered eating. I have somebody close to me who's had a long history of it. I've read a lot about it. There are still certainly people where I say, like, look, this is either out of my wheelhouse or I'm just not comfortable. Like the level of relationship I can have with you is not going to be sufficient compared to actually like seeing somebody about this, you know, so um, or just 
totally other spectrum. I've had people ask me like, can you prescribe me TRT? And I was like, I definitely <laughs> cannot prescribe you that. Um, but really, I mean, there's just a point of like, look, like coaching, online coaching is awesome, but there are some more serious issues where like this is not going to be enough and you really need professional help for it. Yeah, exactly. And like where, you know, um, kind of like fitness professionals and practitioners can come in as sort of that um, middle ground, mm -hmm. you know, like there's, you know, we can't, like people deserve some level of support and maybe they haven't been able to identify what's potentially problematic for them yet. And so an interaction with a very supportive and safe um, practitioner might be their route to being referred to someone who is, um, you know, a, a specialist in, uh, in eating disorders. Like if they do have a clinical eating disorder and they need to be referred out. But not everyone with some level of eating pathology necessarily needs to work with a, a, an eating disorder practitioner. Sure. Um, you know, that could potentially like, I, I imagine that if everyone with some level of eating pathology went to a practitioner, we might like run out of practitioners, you sure. know? And yeah. so, <laughs> but we can also um, be sort of a stopgap as well. So if a person's starting to exhibit some of those eating pathology behaviors, some things that are like, you know, we have, a, it's a whole spectrum. So there's like just normal. And then they're sort of like, hmm, feeling a lot of guilt, feeling out of control about certain foods. If they're working with a practitioner who's really attuned to that, they might be able to help them, um, you know, establish the normative adaptive behaviors before that progresses. Yeah. But on the other hand, if they're working with someone who kind of exacerbates that, then, you know, a, 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 a practitioner could also potentially um, be sort of the, um, the, the catalyst for the development of a full-on eating disorder. So we really have to be cognizant and conscientious about our role and our influence um, because sure. the way that we speak to our clients uh, can change the way that they speak to themselves for better or worse. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so I obviously with, you know, having, I think probably five people on this podcast, I'm keeping a little bit shorter. So just as kind of like a wrap up for people listening, I'm sure a lot of people and a lot of women who are listening to this will relate to a lot of what you've said. Are there things where, I mean, I think if somebody has like a full-blown eating disorder, they're probably aware of it, right? Um, are there things where you can pinpoint or these people can pinpoint themselves kind of like the start of the slippery slope, whether it's things that they catch themselves saying or things that, that they're actually doing different actions or whatever, that they can kind of catch it early before it kind of goes to, to, um, down that spiral? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so some of the sort of internal dialogue you might notice um, if you're having a lot of, of um, critical self-talk about your body um, or if you are using sort of global statements about yourself. So one that's very common with eating pathology and body image disturbances, um, I feel fat, um, but that word means many other things means I feel incapable, I feel insecure. Um, so if we're using statements like that, uh, or if we have beliefs that our body, yeah, is, is making a, you know, or the scale um, mm -hmm. will kind of determine our mood for the day. So if you're noticing that the scale might make you feel really bummed out for uh, the entire day, or you feel really fearful about standing or about getting on the scale. So there can be sort of body checking behaviors feeling preoccupied, looking in the mirror a lot, feeling like you're compulsively weighing yourself or body avoidance behaviors. So avoiding mirrors, not looking at yourself in pictures, 
um, and feeling really fearful about weighing yourself, those could be some flags that there's some body image disturbance. And when it comes to a relationship with food, um, experiencing a lot of guilt or anxiety around foods um, that you feel like you can't keep in the house or a food environment that you feel like you're out of control of. And, and that brings you a lot of anxiety. That's something to keep uh, an eye out for. And then also if you notice that you have, a, um, you, you feel out of control when you're eating things. And so if you feel like, um, you know, obviously like there are diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder, mm. but if you just find that, you know, you have a food like granola um, and you buy it a couple times a year or a few times a year. And then every time you feel like you can't eat to the point of comfort, then that could be a sign that maybe you have some strict rules around food. Mm -hmm. um, so if you feel like there are good foods and bad foods, um, you know, foods that are just like not allowed to be in your diet at all, um, outside of like ethical or religious reasons. Sure. Yeah. Those are some other signals too. So um, usually when we feel like we need to have like a, a lot of control and rigidity around our body and our food, um, those are signs that we might not be in the most balanced relationship that we could have. Awesome. Well, these are obviously very complex topics that's impossible to cover in 20 or even, you know, even in two hours, it's be tough to cover. So I know you have a lot of resources for this. So where can people find more of your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if they're interested in learning more about sort of the history of dieting and diet uh, culture and even calorie counting, I've got some articles um, uh, looking back at that at btgcomprehensivecoaching.com. Uh, Shannon Beer and I are also putting on a couple of uh, webinars starting this Thursday, actually. They can also buy tickets for the webinars there. So those are the Bridging the Gap with Comprehensive Coaching webinars. Shannon also has some awesome body image webinars. And I also have a website, Vitamin PhD Nutrition. So if folks are interested in working together to um, find that place of balance with their food and their body, then please feel free to reach out and um, follow me on Instagram at Vitamin PhD. Awesome. Dr. Fandara, always a great time talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, everybody. So today we have future doc, Elizabeth Rohde. How are we doing? Hi, future doc, really hyping me up. Um, yeah. So I will say this podcast is representative of only my opinion and not of my school, which we have to say that now in today's day and age. Right. But hey, you know, at least we can make it funny. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've been on your podcast, which we can also have a link for below. Uh, you've got a, your own Instagram page. You do coach a lot of female clients. Not, do you coach any male clients? I do. Yeah. Okay. So both, but yeah. I know, you know, we talked about uh, kind of coaching people I've referred to you and vice versa and mm -hmm. whatnot. So how long have you been in the coaching game? We're obviously going to delve here into, you know, body image issues and eating disorders and stuff. But the main reason that I kind of got this together was, and as I've said, probably other times in this podcast, that as I've gotten more female clients, I've seen, and I mean, this is something I've known for a long time, that you see a lot of body image issues and eating disorders in women. And having the different guests on this podcast, we're kind of tackling it from different views, uh, different viewpoints. And so obviously I wanted to bring you on knowing that you have some experience and it's somewhere that like we have some of the same connections in this industry as well. So I thought I'd get mm -hmm. your input there. So how did you get into, I guess, fitness? And then also how did you get into starting to coach a lot of other women? 
Right. So I got into fitness maybe 10 or more years ago. Um, I was always like heavy, overweight growing up um, and obesity and addiction and all that jazz runs in my family. So I saw what it was doing to family members like daily. And I was like, okay, this can't be me. Like this cannot be me. This is where it stops. So I lost a lot of weight going into my like junior year of high school. I was on the track team. I was throwing. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, and then like, I primarily started like lifting Olympic weightlifting for track. And then I kind of stopped after I did track for a year in college and I stopped for like, I don't know, six months. And then I started doing like a bodybuilding style split, like a bro split. And then recently my diet, I really started getting, you know, hammering down on the diet with macros and tracking calories and all that jazz. Because at first, you know, like I was just eating healthy. I was just eating based on guidelines. Um, and then I wanted to start getting into like, I want to look good, like good, good. So <laughs> that's what I ended up doing. And then as that transformation started taking place, I was getting stronger. I was getting more muscular. A lot of my friends were like, Hey, uh, do you coach? Do you write programs? And I like refused to take clients until I tested for my personal trainer cert. Uh, so that was like, uh, probably a little over two years ago. So I tested for it, started taking clients. Then I got into the vertical diet, won their challenge. And then I got vertical diet coaching right. certified. So, so okay. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I actually didn't know you got um, certified with vertical diet, but I knew you won that competition. And I think that's actually a lot of how some of us get into coaching. It's like, we get into just doing it ourselves and then start people start to ask our advice. And then after a while, uh, and then of course, just like having a name out there, like as much as I've been coaching people for years now, obviously once I started the podcast and the Instagram page and everything like that, I, I mean, the inquiries have, you know, quadrupled right. at least. Right. Um, which I think we should also point out though, that just because somebody has a name on social media, does not mean they're a good coach. And just because oh, somebody doesn't have a presence, obviously doesn't mean that they're a bad coach. I mean, it's, it's when you actually see sometimes some of the like inquiries people get or how much attention somebody gets just because, I mean, just, I don't even say the name, but my sister got a program from somebody and she's like, oh, this person, and I was like, like who wrote this for you though? And she's like, Oh, she's this person looks like this and it's amazing. Um, and not surprisingly, you know, she kept up with it for like two weeks. It was just like, she, she doesn't have any background in this stuff at all. So she was doing like six days a week, two hour sessions. And obviously like within two weeks, she was like, I hate this. And she just like burned out. And, and that's unfortunately this person's got like hundreds of thousands of followers and, you know, this reputation and looks amazing. Right. And, um, you know, not to get too much into a rant, but that is, I think one of the things fueling these issues we see is that people, right. they don't get into it appropriately. I think it's probably always going to be the case that people associate this person looks good with this person knows what they're doing. Um, and then that just leads to more and more issues that we see in the industry. Right. Well, and the thing with social media is it's all curated and you know, the people who look like they do, they didn't just start there. They didn't magically just start working out six days a week, two hours a day, you know, like they had to work up from somewhere. They had to have good habits. They had to enjoy it. And then they had to do that for like years. They couldn't just magically become like a bikini competitor overnight. Like right. when I started competing, like I literally was lifting for like 10 years. Like I wasn't just like, oh yeah, I think I'll compete now, you know, like, right. <laughs> so now you competed in powerlifting bikini and was there something else? Oh, uh, I did. Fi I did figure and then I did powerlifting. Okay. 
Gotcha. Yeah. And then you were talking about potentially doing like, there's a new division now wellness, right? Right. So then we were talking about that uh, new division that they came out. It's like two years old, maybe one mm. year old. Uh, so that's interesting because that that's kind of like morphing the way that, I don't know, I guess competitors are viewed because it's bringing in like extra body types kind of. Yeah. It's like bikini versus wellness versus figure versus physique. You know. Part of me is like, you know, is that all that necessary? Because honestly, like, I feel like, and somebody else said this, they were like, you know, you could take the winner from one category. And in a lot of like competitions, they would win like three of the other categories, you know, mm-hmm. because they're just not that different. I guess with well, the it's wellness, all about posing. It's all yeah, about it seems like a lot of posing, some different body types. So yeah. like, obviously, from like bikini to bodybuilding, or to mm-hmm. wellness, even like some of the pictures you're showing me of like the wellness competitors was vastly different than what you'd see in like right. a typical bikini one. I mean, I know girls who compete in bikini who have been lifting for like a year, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's typically not going to be, but, but they'll do okay. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's, well, with bikini, it's all about presentation and leanness. And, you know, like if you look pretty and bouncy on stage and you're very lean, yeah, you're fine for bikini most sure. of the time. Yeah. So do you think that there is, and I mean, from like a competitor's standpoint, um, you know, I would say, and again, I'm not looking at like local shows. I'm just seeing what people post on like national levels and stuff, but probably the majority of women have breast implants. There are oh, yeah. you know, obviously like tons of like makeup and everything. I mean, to some degree, it's more of like a pageant, it seems like then. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if like the bodybuilding section is like that, but certainly like bikini and stuff. Do you think that that just fuels? Cause I think from like a men's side, we talk about how this fuels this need to be lean year round and all these problems from like the, the women's side, I just feel like there's this, it fuels the, the, uh, I don't know, the need or like in their mind, the need to have this ideal body type and, and now even right. get plastic surgery for it. Right. Well, and I will say the majority of competitors that go far do have breast implants. Now <laughs> I've worked in plastic surgery at the Cleveland clinic. I've seen breast implants. It's, a decently lucrative surgery to get it, you know, it's up to you. It's your body image. It's how you feel good. Right. But most of the people in in competitions, you know, if you get that lean, like I'm going to tell you right now that you don't have fat tissue and breasts are mostly fat tissue. So most of the people who want to be judged as feminine or look feminine on stage, have a certain shape, will get the breast implants for judging purposes. And because, you know, like a lot of people don't feel feminine unless they have breast tissue. And if you're super lean, (laughs) you just don't have that. So, you know, how else are you going to get that? Probably doing plastic surgery. And I will say, I do follow a lot of figure competitors who have great pecs, great, you know, chest split or whatever. um, And they end up getting breast implants a couple of years into competing. um, Or they end up like, uh, like DLB, Dana Lynn Bailey, when she won her physique uh, contest, you know, she was told in figure cause she tried to do figure that she looked too manly. She looked like a guy. So, wow. so when she, yeah. So when she started doing figure, uh, that just, they were looking for femininity. Yeah. So can you give a little bit more of your background? I know we said, you know, you're a future doctor, but, um, as far as like your background, you said you worked with some plastic surgery at Cleveland clinic, just go into that a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, well, so, and this also ties into coaching too, because, you know, like I am in medical school and I am in science and a lot of women just aren't, 
so it's kind of like a mentorship role almost as a coach at this point mm-hmm. and it's it's actually really gratifying and really great to teach women like what science is instead of being like oh hey you know i'm just some you know smiling coach face you know yeah. but um so as far as plastic surgery i was interested in plastic surgery being a plastic surgeon for forever like probably since high school um, so I came out here and I did my master's in bioethics and I was shadowing in an ER at Cleveland Clinic. And I happened to meet a plastic surgery resident while I was down in there. And there was being there was a code being run and I was like telling him about the Lucas CPR device. And it was like this whole thing. And he was like, hey, why don't you come work in our lab? Hmm. So I got a first author paper out of Dr. Basiri's lab uh, in metabolomics of limb perfusion, which is basically like if you get in... A car accident and your limb gets chopped off we can keep it alive until we can reattach it is basically what it is um and then we ran a lot of metabolism like metabolomic studies on it um and so most of the funding was from like dod department of defense for military work and then that's ultimately the journal that i ended up getting published in was a military journal so it was some pretty heavy duty like very high scientific stuff. And then via that, I met Dr. Bruno Graber from Case Western, which he's done a lot of work with like uh, the keto diet and ketones and all that fun stuff. So his name has been used in a bunch of different keto podcasts across, (laughs) like I think Paul Saladino or something like that. He was in one of them, but yeah, so there's this weird intersection between science and, (laughs) and muscle research and plastic surgery and Somehow I ended up in the middle of all of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So do you find, I mean, as, as far as the women who have had to get like plastic surgery, I mean, we're mainly referring to um, like the breast implants here, but I know certainly, I mean, this isn't just apply to women. I mean, people will get liposuction. They have seen ab implants, uh, you know. They'll get injections like, and, yeah. you know, lip fillers and face surgery and Botox and all that fun stuff too. Like it's not. Yeah. It's do, very... do you find that people who get these surgeries. I mean, cause you, you can see both ways, right? Like I, I'm not somebody who's against plastic surgery. Um, right. I, I think that there are people who either in their head or really like a real, I don't want to say like a real problem. Cause that's, it's subjective, but something that legitimately bothers them. And I, I don't think it's my place or anybody's place to say like, Oh, like you're wrong for having right. an issue with that. You know, if you are an A cop and that just really bothers you or you are, there's a, pretty well-known plastic surgeon out in, um, I think it's San Francisco. And he was saying, you know, like he gets a lot of women who are Middle Eastern and, Mm -hmm. you know, they have like these beautiful features and they have a big problem with like their nose. And then it's a a huge transformation, whatever it is. I think that's totally fine. Um, I think the problem comes from if it's like, Hey, I'm going to, I don't know, love myself more or like, I, I, this is going to fix my issue. And rather than it's like, I'm doing this for, you know, my own self improvement and something that I like, and that's a really fine line, right? How do you determine like, this is just a personal issue versus like, this is a psychological issue. I mean, it, I don't think it's so clear cut. Um, and that's well, obviously it's, oh, go ahead. That's kind of how the, the field, the field of ethics kind of comes into play, right? Yeah. I mean, these are elective surgeries, but you know, are we doing psych consult? for every single surgery that we do? Absolutely not. Right. Um, are the surgeons sitting and talking and consulting with their patient, getting full consent and they're paying out of pocket because insurance is not covering it? Right. Yes. So at that point, it's like, 
you know, they're not being coerced. They came in and they, you know, they came to seek it out themselves. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, actually, um, earlier with Gabrielle, she was talking about like in reference to me saying like, you know, if somebody comes and they want filler, but it's like, there's a certain point where it's like, I'm, I'm not going to give you any more, right? Like, like the, or there's other right. things. Well, and on. then there's like, you know, medical contraindications. You cannot give a certain amount of filler, right? Sure. Um, you can put filler in the wrong spot and somebody could lose their sight. And, they, yeah. you know, like there's totally. different medical contraindications and the patient needs to be com- like informed about all of it. Yeah. So, but, regarding- but I don't think, I don't think people like are educated about that though. You know, well, like and that's, they- <laughs> that's kind of like tying back into like the, from the competition standpoint, like how many people, cause a, a lot of, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but a lot of plastic surgery is not done by board certified plastic surgeons. Right. right? Yeah. And, yeah, and then yeah, obviously it's going to depend on the, the procedure. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, something like, mm-hmm. like for breast implants, probably, I think the statistic is like 80% of them are done by board certified plastic surgeons, which is what you would want for a procedure like that's so invasive. Right. Um, then there's but other things aren't. that are not. What's that? But some oh, yeah, aren't. And, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. I think of something like that serious. Um, liposuction is another one that is mm-hmm. done very frequently by like med spas and things like that. People who right. they can just, you know, buy like a, um, what is that? Like cool sculpting machine or something like yeah. that and do it. You can get some of these like, you know, um, really irreversible scars. So and I don't want to get down that, that whole rabbit hole, but just to say that I do think that when you, you get into like the world of bodybuilding and serious competitors, you, it's like this um, escalation ladder to like kind of like crazier and crazier things. And that could apply to drug use that you just start with a little, you know, the thyroid medication, and then it's like add some clen. And then all of a sudden you're, you're taking more and more. Um, it can go for plastic surgeries. Hey, well, I'm just going to, you know, do this one thing. And then, so, and again, I'm not necessarily completely mm-hmm. against anything, but. Well, it, you know, can... everybody's an adult. They can choose, choose what they want to do. Right. But yeah. if you think changing your body is going to fix your self-worth issues, it's probably not the case. It's probably not. Yeah. Um, because it's like how I feel like you and I specifically eat a certain way because we want to be healthy at the mm-hmm. end of the day. And I feel like that's a little bit different than some of the people in the fitness industry who, especially competitors who end up being like, well, I have to fit in this little box of what figure judge is going to judge for. Right. You know, and I will do whatever it takes to get X trophy. So do you think those people who have self-worth issues, and I mean, I do have an opinion on this and obviously I want to hear yours that the people who have these self-worth issues, um, do you think that, the competition and like the surgeries and the things that go with it, just fuel it. Like they might be thinking this is going to better me. And in reality, like it just Mm -hmm. exacerbates these problems that already exist. It could exacerbate it. It it really could. Um, A lot of people, especially, you know, if you get really obsessed with something, (laughs) it's kind of lonely, you know, like you end up uh, isolating yourself and getting really into whatever it is, which is not bad necessarily, Mm -hmm. but when you're at the top of your game, it's isolating. So to each their own, if that makes you yeah. happy, fine. <laughs> Have you seen people who, after going down the rabbit hole of competitions and, and mm-hmm. like, you know, body manipulation, things like that, have tried to like almost like reverse everything, either surgically or otherwise, that they end up in a, a worse situation than they were to begin with? Mm, I wouldn't say worse. 
I've seen people get like fillers reversed with like hyaluronidase if they get the hyaluronic acid fillers and stuff like that. Um, You know, like sometimes they just go in and it's a little bit too jarring and there was just too much put in stuff like that. Um, But I don't know, like there's people who get tattoos and get tattoo removal. So it's just like, it's all depending on your state of mind during it, why you're getting it for what reason, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, I think your perspective is interesting because like you are doing a lot, right? I mean, you're like, obviously you're in med school. Um, you also coach, you also have your podcast going on. Um, and then to do all these like competitions, I, I think you're probably a good model for somebody who wants to be achieving a lot. Uh, but it doesn't, at least from my conversations with you, it doesn't seem like you have like any like psychological issues in the sense that I noticed that like, like you like hate your body or things like that. Like, of course you, and like, it's interesting because you so want to improve it, right? Like a lot of mm-hmm. us do. Um, but I don't know if that's an inherent quality to you or if you would have advice for women to, because most people, it's like, I don't know if, again, correlation or causation, most people who strive as much as you do for the improvements end up having some unhealthy psychology behind it. Um, whether right. that's, that's what drives them to do it, which is a lot of people, or in becoming so obsessive with the improvements they end up having that kind of like negative, you know, feedback there. Um, so I don't know if that's something that you can speak of, or if it's just something that you just naturally noticed in yourself. So this is going to be pretty interesting. There's a couple different routes that I could take with this answer. Uh, so one, I've seen the extremes on the other end with obesity and addiction. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, you know, going as far away as humanly possible that I can from that is my MO. Two, I'm pretty masochistic in the gym. I enjoy really, you know, being in pain, doing as many sets as, you know, like it's bad. So now like I've had to, you know, get a coach to program me so that I don't go overtrain at like usual. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's that. Um, and that I think is like my outlet. Most of the time I use it. I use training as an outlet, um, rather than a progress type of deal. Now, obviously, like if I follow a correct program, I will make progress because I will go in anyways, because it's my outlet. And I feel like it's usually the other way around and people with body image issues, I'm going to the gym because I hate myself because I have to, because I'm burning calories. And that's just like the wrong mindset I think to have. Um, I think you should go to feel good because you enjoy it because it's an outlet because it's a stress release. Any of the above is pretty much a better mindset than I hate myself. So I'm forcing myself to go through this punishment right? because that's just not sustainable and that's not going to work out. Um, and also exercise in itself is like the healthiest thing you could possibly do for your body, mm-hmm. uh, for your mood boosting. It increases BDNF. It increases memory consolidation, increases neuroplasticity. It keeps your brain alive. It, it literally like reduces the risk of Alzheimer's, like all of these things for you to go in and hate it. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there's also like, I was a fat kid growing up. I'm not going to lie. You know, Same. like I did, not like myself for a long time. Um, and the, my main attribute was probably like me being smart and sitting in my room reading all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I have different facets of being rather than just how I look. 
Um, right. And I will be like, disclaimer, like I've never gotten plastic surgery. I just worked, you know, in a plastic surgeon office. You know what I mean? Like, so it's just like, there's different facets of being rather than just how you look. And I think that's what people are missing because you can improve in multiple areas of your life. You do not need to be a supermodel. You can model like it. I made great money modeling, you know, but like <laughs> you don't have to. Yeah. Um, you can be, well, I think having those other things that, and that's probably, and it may be like a good point to wrap up on too, is that that's something you do see a lot in this space is that's somebody's like whole identity. And when I see that, like I, I get almost sad for the person because it's like, it's not that, I have a problem with somebody like, you know, having certain poses on Instagram or whatever, like, I don't care, but it's more like, man, like that's, that's clearly all that you have going for you slash that's your identity completely. Right. And I hate, I hate making it negative like that. You know what I mean? Um, Because like, what if that person's actually really proud of themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, but, or maybe they came so far from some other thing, but I feel like the gym is my way of controlling the rest of everything around me. I treat my school kind of like training. I do some every day. I train some every day. You know, it's, I eat healthy every day. It's not, it's not some random accomplishment. I'm at yeah. the right place at the right time. And I'm prepared, you know? Yeah. Um, and you also that's how body image is. Like as much as like, I, I agree with you in the sense that like, no, it's fine. Like if, if modeling is your thing, that's fine. I just, from what I've seen, a lot of times when that's completely your identity and you tie your self-worth to that, it's like you mm-hmm. can't, you literally cannot keep that up. It's impo- like long-term. Well, you know? and then you it, can what sucks be- is like, what happens if it, you know, like everybody has a fat day or whatever, or everybody has a bad hair day. It's yeah. like, is that going to literally tear your entire world apart? Like you, you need to be a little bit stronger than that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So... Yeah. And, and not to say like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Somebody might hear that and say, well, what do you mean? Like, I know people who are 50 and they still look amazing. And, and like, I'm not saying that's not true, but it's very rare that like, if you have objective beauty standards, which is pretty much impossible, but I'm just saying like, it's very rare that you're going to say, okay, at 60, I'm like looking like I did at like 25 and you shouldn't ex- be expected to, like, you shouldn't, I don't think that would be reasonable. I think you should right. focus on health first, right? What else are you um, offering to the world? You know, what, what are you mm-hmm. as far as like providing value and things like that? And if you look awesome while you do it, that's fantastic. And it's not for me to say what your goal should be. I just think on average, most people who completely tie their self-worth to how they look, that's a losing battle, you know? Well, yeah. And it, it, it speaks a lot to mental health stuff too, because like I've started coaching plenty of clients that started out with anxiety, depression, obesity, blah, 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 blah. And then I coach them for like a year and they start getting off their meds and they start sleeping better and they start, you know, really liking their job much more than they did before. And it's, it's not just, Oh, wow. I hate myself and I hate how I look. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not performing for me. I'm not passionate about something outside of myself. Like you can't be in your head all day and be happy. Like, that's just not, you have to be somewhat in a flow state outside of that somewhere, right? All right, Elizabeth. Well, thank you for taking the time. We will obviously have links to Instagram and anywhere else we can find you. Are there other places besides Instagram people can find you? Um, I do have a YouTube channel for the podcast that I run. So that's the, it's it's just my name, Elizabeth Rohde on YouTube. Um, And the podcast is the Ethical Epidemic, if I can talk. There's some awesome (laughs) Um, podcast guests. I'm aware of. 
Yeah, one of them's Dave. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, that's pretty much it right now uh, awesome. for online presence. Yeah. Cool. Thanks again. Thanks. All right. So today we have on the podcast Jessica Terrier. How are you doing, Jess? Good. How are you? Good. So we've chatted for a while. You are one of the esteemed members of the Revive Stronger team. And as we were discussing, you know, I'm kind of doing this roundtable here where we're going to delve into body dysmorphia and eating disorders and things in that regard. For women who are getting into the lifting space, everybody's kind of got a little bit of a different niche in the industry. And one of the things that you and I were going to talk about, because it's something that you have good experience with, is purposefully gaining weight and bulking up as a woman. You know, I think for guys, it's almost seen as, I mean, I've said before, I get more compliments, almost the fatter I get, because most of the time my clothes are on and with my clothes on, I just look bigger, right? And so, I mean, literally, like when I bulked up to my fattest, I was still getting compliments on how big I was looking, right? And for women, that's usually not the case. And usually they feel like they just want to be leaner and leaner. Um, So before we delve into that, can you just give a little bit of your background? How do you get involved with Revive Stronger? uh, And what is your lifting background? Sure. Um, So I started lifting four, four or five years ago with my ex. Uh, It wasn't really uh, proper lifting. It wasn't structured. It was like bro bro kind of thing um and then i broke up with him and i asked steve who was my coach at the time so steve is the founder of revive stronger i asked him where i could actually get some legit medication within the industry and he sent me to jps in australia so i went to jps got my certification i did an in-person mentorship there and then steve offered me with pascal the job of intern at revive stronger and i turned full-time coach last august so not even a year ago Uh, so i've been coaching for them for a year and a half a year and yeah a year and a half now um yeah it's been great and i have i've done my first prep as a bikini competitor in 2019 in australia in the ifbb and i'm currently prepping to step on the stage at the end of this year so i also have that as an experience uh to know like when to gain maybe that gives a little bit more context uh as to like the the importance of actually massing and then cutting to uh look like you lift on stage. Yeah, awesome. I didn't realize that you had actually worked with Steve that long ago. So it was like close to five years ago. No, three. I hired Steve in 2018. And before that, I was lifting for about a couple of years by myself. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, cool. So on that topic of, you know, when you died it down and wanted to bulk back up, did you personally find that that was hard for you? I mean, obviously, there's going to be some subset of the population of women who are totally fine with it, that they just fully embrace it. Um, And and that's one of the reasons I I think it's positive for a lot of people, including women, to maybe get into powerlifting where there's or like just that general idea of, okay, gaining strength is cool. Gaining weight can be cool. And that community is usually very supportive of that. Um, And and that's, I think, a benefit to a lot of people. Uh, But did you find that you were somebody who just naturally went into it or did it take a long time mentally to adjust? I think the very first, at the, at the very first beginning, when I started with Steve, um, it was easy because I had no clue. I, I wasn't really involved in social media. I wasn't really following any like fit pros or anyone that was really lean year round. So I didn't have that uh, kind of social media pressure to stay lean or remain lean all the time. So the first first massing phase was actually pretty easy. I gained something like 10 kilos in a year, which is like 
enormous. Uh, and uh, when I arrived in Australia to start my prep, I was fairly chubby, uh, but I was really confident. I was really, I was really feeling good in my own skin because I had packed on a lot of muscle mass as well. Um, which is one thing we need to mention as well is that if you want to actually be gaining muscle, you're going to have to be gaining a little bit of fat and body weight in general. But yeah, the first time was actually pretty easy because I had no expectations. I had no pressure from social media or anything else. And then I stepped on stage and the cycle started with like, okay, I have some body image issues. Um, I'm stage lean. I don't want to get over fat. So now I have to restrict myself even when I'm massing because I don't want to get like, I want to gain, I don't want to gain too much body fat. And yeah. Uh, so I had to, I had, I had both sides of the coin where I had a really easy way gaining the first time. And now it's a little bit harder just because, um, I know what it is to be lean. I know what it, what it looks like for me to actually be stage lean and really lean. So it gets complicated, but um, I think it's still important whenever you're feeling like you have some body image issues to actually keep pushing and try to uh, just be okay with the fact that you're gaining weight, if that makes sense. Yeah. When you went into it, did you know you were going to compete when you were gaining that 10 kilos? No, I had no clue. I wanted to compete. I knew I wanted to compete, but I, I didn't have a set date on it. So I had no clue that was going to be that close. Uh, but then I got the opportunity to compete in Australia and to do my prep at JPS. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to jump on that. Um, but no, I didn't know I, I was going to compete right after the first gaining phase. So yeah, uh, the first gaining phase I think was also easy because I was really excited to actually put on muscle. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's something we don't talk about enough because most people are actually very excited to get lean to cut especially yeah. for females but we never talk about like hey it's like massing is exciting massing is fun yeah. like whatever you want to call it it's it's like that's why i tell my clients it's where the party's at like your um your energy level your energy availability uh your training is amazing uh you're not overly food focused you can enjoy the foods that you like your sex drive is high like everything is just working great at that point so i think there's some uh some things to say to mention about gaining that it's it's really fun cutting is easy putting on putting on muscle is like fairly hard and you need to dedicate some actual time towards it so i think we need to um maybe talk a little bit more about the benefits of massing and yeah it's, it's just a fun time you get to eat the food you get to have social time um it, it's it's a lot more pros than cons in my opinion yeah it's funny because i mean first of all i didn't realize that your first bulk up was that much i mean definitely for someone your size that's pretty significant you know you're talking like 22 pounds um and then on top of that when you say, well, cutting's easy and bulking up or gaining muscle is hard. And I remember like, geez, I don't know, 15 years ago now having like an argument on a forum about that because there was a big bodybuilder guy saying basically that. And I said, well, it depends on, I guess, what you mean by easy or simple. So I think dieting is simple and it can be done fast, right? But most people find it a more difficult process, you know, you suffer more, you know, the sleep can get affected, there's a lot of hunger, bulking definitely is takes more time to gain a substantial amount of muscle, not to mention that I think while, 
you know, genetics are going to influence one's ability to lose fat. Anybody can lose fat, right? Like it's, it's almost everybody can, but there's a point where you just can't keep gaining muscle, right? And you're just not gonna be able to do it at a certain point. Um, but as you said, the process of gaining muscle tends to be a lot more fun and a lot more enjoyable, you know, and you're not, like you said, focused on food all the time. You're usually sleeping better. You're actually hitting PRs in the gym. So that process is a lot more fun. I, I think um, I, it, it, not only it's fun, but it's pretty straightforward. Like mm -hmm. you have a goal and you just, you just have to follow the simple rules of like, okay, I need to get stronger in the gym. I just need to do a little bit better and a little bit more than previously. I just need to be gaining weight over time and making sure that I manage the rate of gain. Um, that's it. That's everything you have to do to be massing. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty, pretty simple. Um, and I'm not saying that dieting is fairly easy. Uh, it's, it's a whole process and it's not fun and it's, it's hard, but, uh, yeah, as you said, I think everybody has the ability to lose fat pretty easily, uh, and you don't have to be overly focused on it. So yeah, I think there's just a lot of misconceptions about gaining weight for females. Maybe there's a negative connotation, uh, to the way we call it. Cause it's always like massing bulking, um, gaining, uh, it's always like all those negative connotations, like, oh, it means I'm going to gain fat, but you're not just going to gain fat. You're also going to gain a lot of muscle in the process. And that's what we're after. And you can always minimize the amount of muscle of, of uh, the amount of fat that you're gaining, uh, compared to the, uh, amount of muscle. Um, and that's something you can regulate with having some rate of gains with, uh, trying to maybe adjust your calories, uh, weekly, if something is going a little bit too fast for, for your liking. Uh, but there's always something we can do. So, yeah, I think, I, do, I think it's just a, a misconception about gaining for females. Like it's really fun. It's pretty easy and you're not going to look like you're fat on the opposite like that's when you have the more like curvy kind of look uh that is really pleasable like to like everybody's eyes really <laughs> so you don't have to stay lean to look good uh and that's really something i talk about on social media a lot you don't have to be lean to be relevant it doesn't mean that like because a lot of people, like a lot of uh, Instagram models and fitness professionals, like they get paid, they can actually monetize their body image. Not everybody's going to be able to do that. And you, you don't have to stay lean to actually be relevant first. And, and second, people don't understand that those people maybe are like the 1% at the top who don't have a hard time just staying lean year round or maybe they just don't talk about how hard it is for them to stay lean because they think they have to stay lean to be relevant. Does, does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, and also, like you said, there has been, at least as far as like kind of like our industry and the people we talk with, there's been a shift, I think in recent years to less of just being skinny and more, like you said, having curves and things like that. And that's, you know, hugely individual. I don't think you should try to chase what is like the current start, like the, uh, the ideal look currently, right? Because that's going to change and you should do it for you. But I do see a trend that people do prefer like more muscle now. And like you said, some curves rather than just being very skinny. Um, and, and secondly, I think to your point earlier about bulking up, most people, especially if you've done a significant bulk, find that 
that makes the diet later when you do eventually want to diet down easier, not just because you've increased your metabolism, increased the amount of muscle mass, but your appetite is significantly less and you get used to the point. I mean, most women who are chronically dieting have no idea what it's like to even be full for days on end, right? I mean, I can tell you as a guy who's bulked up many times, you do, even with a big appetite, you get to a point where like, you know, I'm ready to not keep shoving food (laughs) down my face, right? And so that kind of gets you into the idea of, okay, now I can start bringing food down. And I just think it makes the process a little easier. And again, that's even just psychologically, it makes it easier. Um, So when you have somebody, let's say, I'm obviously you have plenty of female clients. Do you find that you kind of put the training first in the nutrition in terms of saying, well, if we get you bulking up first, or should we get you stronger first? Are there things that you focus on even in your worrying to it, depending on their background? Yeah. First, I just want to piggyback on what you just said about um, whatever you're just saying, like the whole idea. Uh, it's if you want to be lean and look like you actually lift weight, you need to have muscle mass on, meaning that you need to be gaining first, because if you just like be like if you just intend to be shredded and you don't have any muscle mass, you're just going to look skinny, like model like. 2000 model skinny, Mm -hmm. like really, really like this old school, like really thin uh, look. And it's usually what my people are after. Like they want to look like they actually lift and you need to be putting on muscle first. Um, So yeah, when I, when I have female clients and we're massing or the goal is massing, I usually try to put performance first and I actually really put an emphasis on training uh, and making sure that we're not overly focused on the scale weight or anything like that. I just take the data as it is data. Uh, I take measurements every like six weeks, maybe, but it's usually a big, big emphasis on how, how stronger they're getting in the gym, how enjoyable is the training program so they can actually thrive on the program and they're not taking too much time thinking or overthinking about gaining weight or how they look. But the more I do it, the more I realize that they're actually, there's, there's this big shift in the industry where females are actually more comfortable gaining weight uh, and being in like massing phases. Uh, And yeah, I have have female clients are actually like, yeah, like I love being thicker. It's actually really enjoyable for me. Uh, And, and because they can feel the side effects of being stronger in the gym and everything else that comes with it, they're actually feeling so much better. So yeah, I really put an emphasis on, uh, on training rather than nutrition when they're massing. Uh, and yeah, I just took a, I just, as a coach, I take a look sometimes at how they look and I ask them the questions like, Hey, how are you feeling mentally about your body? I try to ask the question like every month just to make sure that we're on track with everything and that their mental health is still pretty good. Uh, and I honestly haven't, haven't had like a negative feedback yet. Uh, like they're okay massing. They're okay with, uh, focusing on training. Yeah. I think putting an emphasis on training and maybe having a more, um, performance goal, uh, is easier for them in the off season. So they can actually chase numbers in the gym rather than just looking at numbers on the scale. So I guess because, uh, final question here let's say because obviously there's going to be people who come here and there are a lot of what we're talking about where they're already skinny chronically dieting and you know they're having a hard time gaining the weight what do you do if you have a female client who's come to you and they've been in this kind of yo-yo cycle chronically dieting still 
for a year or whatever extended period of time, but they are admittedly still what people would call overweight. You know, their body fat is still relatively high. Do you take that person and try to even like the other clients still try to say, Hey, let's focus on training goals. Do you acknowledge that, Hey, you are probably still pretty high in body fat. Let's work on bringing that down. How would you approach that for somebody who's already kind of in that cycle? I, I would first ask them what they want to do, what they want to be doing. And then I will give them my opinion on, uh, on if what they want to be doing is a good idea. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with chasing uh, cutting phases or chasing being leaner if that's going to make your mental health better and if that's going to make you more comfortable in your skin and more able to actually do things in the gym that's going to be productive in the long term. Um, so I would ask them first, what do you want to be doing? What are your goals? And then we can break those goals down into maybe mini goals along the way. Uh, but I would always ask them first what they feel comfortable doing and go with that first if I can, because their motivation is going to be higher and their adherence is going to be higher. So if they need to body recomp, I will maybe explain to them how education is going to be important, how tracking food maybe is going to be important, valuable for us to do. Um, but yeah, I usually choose the option that they want to follow. And I try to work around uh, maybe some terms uh, that are not fixed uh, from the get go. So we can actually work together in combination uh, and it's not detrimental to their mental health, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, it's good. You know, I, people might have an idea of like, well, you have to do one thing or another, but at the end of the day, if a client is not on board with what you're advising, even if it's the right decision, they're, they're not going to follow it. And so then you're going to end up not helping them along the way. So I think, you know, there's a point where you're going to say, Hey, I don't think it's healthy to do X, Y, Z thing. But for the most part, obviously, I still think you should be taking into consideration what their current goals are. Yeah. It's only a limitation of health obviously like if someone is like with a high body fat percentage i'm not going to tell them to keep bulking uh right. i'm probably going to say hey there might be another solution we can body recomp we don't have to drop your calories too low but we can definitely do something productive um and it, it's always yeah it's always putting their demands first uh and maybe just letting them know what are the options if uh, if what they want to be chasing seems unrealistic or like actually letting them know like, hey, maybe this isn't realistic for now in this time frame. So we need to reframe how we're going to do things. But yeah, always taking into consideration their want first. So it's easy for them to adhere and have someone guide the ship maybe. Awesome. Well, Jess, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I think a lot of people watching already follow you, but where can people find more of your stuff? Jess Dalglish on uh, Instagram, uh, and that's pretty much it. We have a uh, member site with Revive Stronger where we put out a lot of content. We have the Revive Stronger podcast, obviously. Uh, but yeah, Jess Dalglish on uh, Instagram, the easiest way to find me. Awesome. I will have links to that down below. Thanks again. Thank you for having me on.